my first step in in any time I'm doing an option purchase deal to acquire on behalf of a screenwriter uh, to acquire the movie and TV rights to a book, very first thing I do is give me the contract between the author and the publisher. Welcome to Best in Fest. I'm Leslie Lepage, the uh, founder and director of La Femme International Film Festival, and this is a podcast for people who are interested in advancing their career in television and film and talking about all the dirty little secrets of Hollywood. Today, my guest is Paul Levine, and I'm so happy to have his dynamic personality with us today. He is amazing. He's an entertainment attorney, but really he started off as an a literary agent, which he still does. He represents publishing, books publishing. He goes into and represents comic uh, book and graphic novels as well. He received his Bachelor of Commerce Magna Cum Laude from Concordia University in Montreal and went on to earn a Master's of Business Administration from New York University in Toronto. And then he began his entertainment career straight out of law school, dealing with entertainment litigation and entertainment transaction. But the really exciting thing is that you are, yes, an entertainment attorney, but you also handle the publishing aspect for clients who are novelists, right? Taking that novel and that book into what we look at as film. So um, how did you get into this? Why why this? So uh, lots of practical and um, coincidental reasons. So let's start with um, I went. I came here for law school in 1978. I went to USC. Forty years later, by the way, I'm now an adjunct professor of law at USC Law School, where I teach in a, call, a course called Entertainment Law and Practice. Hopefully, that'll be in the classroom next year. It's uh, it's in the spring semester, so it'll start in January of next year, and I'm hoping that indeed uh, we'll be in the classroom. The very first law firm that I worked for straight out of law school had clients that definitely shaped the entire rest of my career. The first one was a book publisher called Price Stern Sloan. Roger Price created Mad Libs. Uh, Leonard Stern created TV shows like The Honeymooners and Get Smart, for those of you who are old enough to remember those. Larry Sloan invented bookstores and airports. In the 1970s, when you went to JFK International or you went to LAX, you could buy a newspaper, you could buy a magazine, but you couldn't buy a book. So he invented Hudson Books. And so I learned the book business literally sitting at Larry Sloan's knee in his office day in and day out, or not every day, but every time I, I you know, left Century City where my law firm was, to go to his uh, office, which was on top of a uh, sexy lingerie store on La Cienica Boulevard, which is actually still there. Is it the cute little one on the corner that is like the sexy lingerie? It's almost on the corner. It, it's uh, it's across from the basically That's across right. diagonally across from the That's Beverly right. Center. I know where that is. Anyway, I was fortunate enough. You know, most lawyers who get involved in entertainment law start off learning uh, movies or television, or music, I was fortunate enough to start off le learning the book business first. And as far as I'm concerned, when I talk to uh, book authors and screenwriters as well, 
The book is the foundation on which everything else gets built. It is almost impossible these days in LA, in fact, and certainly has been impossible for a long time to sell spec strips. They're, they're harder and harder and harder to sell. What Hollywood wants is somebody else to say yes first. And the yes that they most like to hear about is a yes that a book has been published by Simon & Schuster, by HarperCollins, by Random House, by Penguin, one of the big publishers. Then they will jump on reading the manuscript, even if the book hasn't been published. As long as I can have in my hot little hands a contract that says, this is a book that's going to be published by Macmillan in the fall of 2022, or whatever it is, then they will read the manuscript. And if the client is versatile enough to actually have written the screenplay version of the same story that's told in the book, they will also, of course, read the script. And then there are four sales to be made. So from the practical point of view, rather than selling a spec script for a first-time writer, that writer is going to make $100,000. Writer's Guild minimum plus 10%, roughly $100,000. That's it. No matter how well the movie does, no matter what else happens with it, that's all you're going to get from a spec script. Whereas if you do it the way I'm suggesting, which is if you've written a script, to reverse engineer your script and write a book and get the book published, you sell the book to the book publisher, you make money from that. You sell the movie rights to the book to Hollywood, you make money from that. You sell the screenplay, you make money from that. And by the way, on a creative level, your screenplay is going to, when you rewrite your screenplay after you've written the book, your screenplay is going to be a hell of a lot better because you have gotten to know your characters in ways that you couldn't when you originally wrote your script. Because when you're writing the book version of the story, you're going to get inside your character's head. Whereas you, where you can't do that when you're writing, just writing a script. And then fourthly, you're going to get hired as a producer on the movie, fill in the blank, supervising producer, executive producer, associate, whatever. You're going to get hired as a producer on the movie because you, of course, the author, control the movie rights and TV rights to your own book. More pots of money instead of 100K to sell the script. Plus, you're much more likely to actually get Hollywood interested in your story via doing it as a book first. Yeah, this is what I've been saying for years for the independences. And, and some smarter independents have started reverse engineering this and taking this really interesting, let's say, high concept or very involved script and, and writing the novel, then going out and either self-publishing it if they can't get a publishing deal. Ideally, it's better to get a publishing deal. But, but even... Self-publishing, if you want to get Hollywood interested in your book, Self-publishing is not the way to go. Hollywood is not interested in a yes from you, your the self-publisher. They're interested in a yes from Macmillan, from Ashet Books, from Random House, etc. But there have been some exceptions where self-publishing, they have been able to draw in through social media enough hits where it has shown to be a lucrative self-publishing you know, option. So... I'm not saying that rules it out. I'm just saying it's a little harder to push it that way as opposed to a formal Absolutely. publisher. Absolutely. So, so let's talk. A, so this is fascinating because a lot of the uh, independents out there go, well, you know, can I really translate that script, reverse it into a book? You know, yes and no, right? Sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. So 
most of the time you can. The, the exceptions are the broad uh, slapstick romantic comedies. Those don't obviously translate well into writing a novel version of that story, uh, especially when there's a lot of, of physical comedy in, involved. Yeah, that obviously doesn't translate well. But virtually anything else, sci-fi, horror, straight drama, virtually anything else, um, at the end of the day, stories are about people doing things and thinking things. Talk about your expertise in like the graphic novel, you know, aspect, because a lot of that can be translated into TV series. The second client back at the very first law firm that I worked for, who shaped the rest of my career, was a guy named Jack Kirby. So Jack is the one who created Captain America, Spider-Man, Incredible Hulk, Fantastic Four, X-Men, all the way up to Black Panther and Iron Man, involved with Iron Man, although he didn't create Iron Man. Um, etc. So yes, he worked for Marvel. At the time I met him in 1981, he had left Marvel. Now Jack was a guy who's soaking wet was like five foot one. <laughs> and I am six two. So I remember the very first day um, he came to the office with his uh, associate Mark Evanier, who I still represent to this day. Uh, Jack uh, came to the office. My boss came to the door of my little office. Of course, my boss had the huge office. I had the little office. So I, Jack was in, in with my boss first. And then my boss came to the door and said, I'd like you to meet Jack Kirby. And I looked up from whatever I was doing at my desk. And I said, who? And Jack laughed. And then I stood up. And I said, Jack, and I shook his hand. And I said, Jack, nice to meet you. And I said, what, what brings you here? Well, I'm making it. He said, well, I'm making a new deal with DC Comics. I'm leaving Marvel and I'm going to DC. Well, I said, well, I have a confession to make, which I think you're going to like. Um, as a kid, I never read Marvel Comics. I never read your stuff. I read DC Comics. I read Superman and Batman. And he smiled and he looked me up, looked up like this and he shook my hand again. And he said, kid, we're going to get along just fine. And we did. Jack and his wife, Roz, were like the grandparents, the Jewish grandparents that I needed in L.A. that I didn't have. And I came here, of course, I had no family here in L.A. Um, to speak of. I had a cousin, but that was about it. And he passed away, unfortunately. So I had virtually, literally no family here. And so Jack and Roz became like the grandparents that I never had. I learned the comic book business from Jack and Roz and from Mark Evanier, uh, Jack's uh, right-hand guy and associate. So to this day, I sell lots of comic books and graphic novels. The nice thing about graphic novels rather than comic books themselves, and a graphic novel, all a graphic novel is is a comic book that's 120 pages long rather than 36 pages long or 32 pages long. The nice thing about graphic novels is not only are they published by Marvel, DC, Dark Horse, Image, uh, Boom, and, and the rest of the large independent comic book publishers, but they're also published by the book publishers, which means that in addition to being available at comic book stores, they're also available at bookstores. So you can walk into a Barnes & Noble and buy a graphic novel, and you can walk into a Heidi Ho Comics here in Santa Monica 
and buy a graphic novel or a comic. Now, are there certain um, target age brackets within that graphic novel that they're mm, leaning more towards? You know, youth, youth or teen or the younger kids. You know, where where does it fall that gets them excited a little bit more? Teenage boys. We're still pushing towards that demographic. Of course, unfortunately, yes. There are a limited number of girls and women who read comic books, but not nearly as many as, as male, it, which is ironic because it's opposite in the, in the book world. In the book world, men don't read books. 80% of all books are bought by women. But in the comic book and graphic novel world, it's teenage boys who spend all of their allowance and whatever in their pocket money from delivering newspapers or whatever on comic books. Interesting. So with kind of those two two elements, have you seen with the, you know, wave of equality, wave of people of color, have you seen that the graphic novel uh, publishers, that the publishers themselves are looking for authentic stories from people of color? Have, have you seen that increase? Well, DC right now is in a state of flux because of the pending sale, well, even before the pending sale uh, with uh, and then the purchase by AT and T, and now AT and T is trying is likely trying to get rid of it. My prediction is that Marvel is going to buy DC, but we'll see. Or Disney is going to buy DC, but we'll see. So DC is kind of to the side, but Marvel and the large independents, Dark Horse, IDW, uh, Image, Boom here in LA, IDWs in San Francisco, we're all they're all looking for people of color. Any other kind of minority you you can think of, diverse people, absolutely, both for the uh, villains, the heroes, etc. Well, interesting because ten, fifteen years ago they weren't like I couldn't sell that to 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 like you know buy a loaf of bread, right? But but because of this whole turning, we we now have an opportunity for all those that are listening in that are people of color to really. Uh, start looking at publishing and bringing in uh, graphic novels as an opportunity to go back and sell that script that you couldn't sell because nobody wanted to buy it, right? So let me give you an even more close to home and practical example. My son, who is now 30 and of course grew up, my younger son who is now 30, loves comic books and you know grew up with comic books and took a, took a crack at writing a comic book. You know who his his main hero is? girl so you know he he's cognizant of what's in the marketplace and what's going to sell and he's writing something that i'm going to i hope sell for him he gets me as his agent for free <laughs> well gosh we we hope he does right <laughs> uh, my, my son's an actor he's the so only gets... one in the world that gets me for free <laughs> my son's an actor he's the only one in the world that gets me for free too um i totally get that Let's say that they've had some success in the festival circuit with, let's say, winning a couple of awards or getting some official semifinalists or finalists with a TV pilot or with a script that they are now constructing a novel off of. Does that help when you are pitching that to the publisher that, hey, listen, it won't make or break the deal, but any any talking point like that is always a plus. There's no downside to, to mentioning all of that. 
there are some publishers in New York who have the typical New York attitude that anything west of the Hudson River is irrelevant. But they're few and far between, and mo most of the publishers have uh, an open mind when it comes to and and are interested in, especially uh, in the day in, in these days of the internet, etc., where there's all kinds of ways to uh, exploit and uh, stories and and that kind of thing. So yes, winning a film festival or award or any kind of uh, screenwriting award. Writers Guild Awards, et cetera, all, all good. All right, now now you're you're representing your client. What is the current publishing standard deal? I know nothing is standard in this industry, but you know what are you looking for to achieve for your clients in publishing? What are you looking for when you're representing them as a graphic, you know, novelist? So the publishing world works uh, largely like the music business, where they offer an advance against royalties. The nice thing about advances is that they're non-refundable. So even if the book doesn't sell, you get to keep the advance. And then there's a royalty. So let's use some simple, simple uh, arithmetic. Let's say you got a $10,000 advance. And let's say you were getting $2 per book as a royalty, hardcover. It's actually $4.50, but let's say for, two, for ease of arithmetic, we'll use $2. So once you once the publisher has sold five thousand and one copies, you start to get a royalty check. You have to earn back that ten thousand two dollars times five thousand copies, and once you've earned that earned back that ten thousand, you you're, you have the way we talk about it is you have earned out your advance, and now you're going to get royalties. What I tell authors is, look, uh, I don't know what your financial situation is. If your financial situation is that the advance is key to your future being able to live, then we're going to go with the publisher, uh, which offers the highest advance. On the other hand, if the goal is to sell lots of copies of the book over a nice long period of time, year in and year out, and, and money is not such a, an issue for you, you still haven't quit your day job and you have a day job and everything is financially okay, then if one publisher is offering a $10,000 advance and the other publisher is offering a $25,000 advance, but the publisher that's offering the $10,000 advance is willing to do a commitment to have you get out there and promote and publicize the book, they're willing to send you around the country on a book signing tour, they're willing to try to get you on the uh, Good Morning America or the Today Show or you know some national uh, publicity, et cetera, then, and they're going to pay for all of that, of course, and, and pay your expenses to tour around and, and do all of that, then go with the publisher that's going to get out there and sell lots of copies of the book for you over a nice long period of time. All these factors weigh, weigh into what, what the deal looks like, but the royalties that publishers pay are largely the same. No matter if I go to Macmillan or HarperCollins or uh, what I like to call ran random penguins, Penguin Random House, or um, Ashet, those are the big five, Simon & Schuster, those are the big five. But in any event, they're all, they all pay the same. They all pay 15% after 10,000 copies get sold. They all pay 15% of the cover price of the book. And typically, the cover price of a book these days is $30 for a hardcover book. So you're making $4.50 a book. 
no matter where you go. So it's not the, the royalty rates that vary from one publisher to another as much as it is the advance and the publicity and marketing and promotional campaign commitment, et cetera. Right, which they're going to throw in or not. Yeah, which they're going to throw in or not throw in, depending, right, on, on how much they believe in it. Now, do you see that, they, that they'll do this more if they hmm, are backing it more, they really believe in it more? I mean, more so than they kind of believe in it, they're taking it on, but they don't want to, they don't want to send you around the country to pub to to publicize it. How, how does that work in their belief factor? Well, some publishers will tell you, okay, we're going to give you a nice large advance, we expect you to devote part of that advance to hiring your own publicist, your own private publicist, etc. You know, it, it varies in lots of different ways. The other consideration, you know, if, if it were uh, choosing between two publishers, the other consideration is how are you getting along with the editor that you're going to be working with? I have a situation right now where I'm about to sue a publisher because the editor totally effed up my client's manuscript. My client is from India and wrote uh, a culturally sensitive and accurate portrayal of in life in India, etc. And the publisher just totally screwed it up. And so we're about to sue that publisher. So all of these factors, the, the editor that you're, the client is going to be working with, the promotional and publicity campaign, the advance, the royalties, everything goes into deciding on which deal is the best. At the end of the day, it's always the client's decision. I give my advice, the client makes the final decision, I go with what the client uh, decides. Now, in order to to kind of segue this into more entertainment contracts, mm -hmm. how do you what what's your language? What do you try and put into the contracts that will help offset that, protect your client? So yes, good question. So years ago, when I first started in the book business, publishers attempted to actually acquire the copyright in the manuscript, which means they own everything. They own the right to make a stage play, a movie, a TV program, whatever. Those days are long past. The next level, that was in the 70s and 80s. In the 90s, they switched to, okay, if we're not going to get the copyright, we're going to get what are called the dramatic rights. The right to tell the story with paid actors on the stage or on the screen in front of a live paying audience. That is the definition of what are called dramatic rights in a publishing contract, what you and I would call movie, TV, and live stage rights. So they tried to get 100% of those rights. Failing that, they tried to get 51% of those rights so that they got to control the deals that were made with Hollywood. All of that since the 90s or so, mid, mid, late 80s and onward till today, all of that's gone away. Publishers never, ever get dramatic rights. Now we argue over what's an app and what's an ebook and what's a whatever. We argue over other things, but we don't argue over that anymore. They've given up on the argument that if it wasn't for the book, there would be no movie. That's what they used to argue. They're giving up on that argument. I see. That's how they hooked. That's how they hooked them in. Going well, you see, you, you owe us because of you know our publishing, the arm of our publishing. So you owe us this. 
So let me look at this from a different perspective. If I'm approached by um, a screenwriter who wants to adapt an existing book, the first question I will ask that screenwriter is, when was the book published? Because if it was published in the 70s, it is likely that the author does not own the movie and TV rights to the book. But the only way to, you can't do a copyright search. There's no third party database out there in the universe that will tell you who owns the dramatic rights to a book. The only way to verify that is to look at the contract between the author and the publisher. Even if I were representing the screenwriter, even if I were to go to the author's agent and say, hey, Jane, who owns uh, the movie rights to your client's book? Jane will automatically tell me we do, even if it's not true. So the way I, my first step in, in any time I'm doing an option purchase deal to acquire on behalf of a screenwriter uh, to acquire the movie and TV rights to a book, very first thing I do is give me the contract between the author and the publisher. If I can verify that I'm dealing with the right person, namely you, the author, owns the dramatic rights, then we got something to talk about. If, if it turns out that it's the publisher, then I got to go see you later, say to the author and the author's agent, see you later. I got to go deal with the publisher because it's the publisher who owns what I want my, what my client wants to buy. So in the 70s and the 80s, that was pretty much what they were doing is trying to was trying to take over 100 percent. So the likelihood is if they signed that contract in that time frame, the author does not have those rights. Let's say you're you you've written a book. Let's say you you're a novelist. Let's say you might even have a partnership and and let's say that partner mm, started out on the book with you but fell away because you know writing a book is a pain <laughs> no matter how you look at it so it's a, it's a it's a royal pain long long form and so let's say the the partner fell away in entertainment law and publishing law let's say that partner didn't finish that novel Whose rights are, would be disputed in that sort of a case? When uh, Jane and Mary come to me and say they've written something together, whatever the something is, stage play, movie, I don't care what it is. First question, I don't care if Jane and Mary are married. I don't care if Mary's Jane's mother. The first question I will ask them is, do you have a written collaboration agreement between the two of you? Because if you don't, I cannot and will not represent you. You must have a written agreement going in. Before you start putting your fingers to your keyboard or your pen to paper or whatever, it, whatever way you're going to be writing this thing, you need to have a written collaboration agreement between the two of you. It is essential because of things like you describe and a whole other parade of horrible. Mary and Jane get a million dollar offer and there's no written contract between Mary and Jane. So Mary says to Jane, hey, wasn't our deal 75-25? And if it's not in writing and if it doesn't say 50-50 in paragraph three of the agreement, we got a problem. Mary uh, dies. How is it that Mary's executor, the executor of Mary's estate is going to know what the deal was between Mary and Jane? unless it's in writing. How is the court who's administering the probate estate going to know what the deal was 
between Mary and Jane unless it's in writing. Because Jane is going to lie and say, like she did before when there's a million dollars on the table, hey, our deal was 75-25. Lots of good reasons to get a collaboration agreement in writing. If people make the mistake of not having an agreement in writing and they come to me after the fact, that's what litigation or dispute resolution in some way. But, but there, there's, there's no simple way to resolve that problem when somebody doesn't hold up their end of the bargain. Your example was Jane doesn't fulfill her end of the partnership and walks away. What does Jane get? My argument would be if Jane contributed, you know, we'll, we'll evaluate what Jane did contribute and we'll make her an offer substantially less than 50%, obviously, depending on how much of her contribution gets used in the final product. Let me ask you two, two things and then I'll circle back to that. Do you feel if they do not have a contractual agreement between them that putting in a corporation where the ownership of that entity under that corporation would solve that problem? Is that like a different solution for the independents no, out there? It's a bad solution. Because corporations are, are, uh, are run by a board of uh, directors. They have officers. They have shareholders. It's a cumbersome and terrible solution to a simple, much simpler problem. Got you. Okay. So now let's go back to this partnership. Let's say um, one, uh, may maybe they were having conflicts and one of them takes that idea that they may have started. Maybe they wrote a first draft and completely rewrites it into elements that might be similar, but, you know, off on a totally different novel written by the, the solo. Does that, is there still legal ramifications? When Mary and Jane, without a benefit of a uh, collaboration agreement, entered into uh, the original collaboration to start writing what, uh, based on the, the germ of the idea, let's say both of them contributed equally to. One contributed Romeo and one contributed Juliet, or one contributed Romeo and Juliet and one contributed the parents. Who knows? Whatever. They, the basic idea came together uh, from the two of them. And then, as you were describing, one goes off um, and writes something based on that idea, but uh, with nothing substantially similar in terms of dialogue, plot, setting, etc. So there was an implied contract between the two of them that if their idea got used, that they would be both compensated. So if I was representing Mary, the one who, who went off and wrote something different, I would argue that, you know, we didn't take anything. Uh, ideas are as free as the air. Good luck trying to sue. If I was representing Jane, the one who contributed half the idea, I would argue that there was an implied contract that if you used anything that we that I came up with, I mean Jane, that Jane came up with, that Jane should be compensated. And you resolve the dispute in some way. This is an illustration of the, the what lawyers call the idea expression dichotomy. The, the notion that ideas are not protectable. It is the expression of an idea that's protectable. So the idea that Romeo and Juliet get together and their parents don't want them to be together, 
the basic idea that Shakespeare came up with is not protected. So even if Shakespeare was alive in 1951, when West Side Story came out, Shakespeare could not have sued for copyright infringement the creators of West Side Story. Even though, even though the West Side Story is based on boy meets girl, boy's parents and girl's parents don't want them to be together. Now, contrast that with Shakespeare, who was alive in 1951, pitches an idea uh, to the studio that made West Side Story, and says, I got an idea for a movie. Let's make a movie about a boy and a girl meeting and whose parents don't want them to get together. And the executive at the, at the studio says, hmm, interesting idea. Uh, we'll get back to you on that. Shakespeare goes back home. Next thing you know, West Side Story is in the movie. Does Shakespeare have a claim? Absolutely. Under a case called Desney versus Wilder, this is the, the seminal case that all this stuff is based on, what, what lawyers call theft of idea cases. Um, under the case of Desney versus Wilder, what protects ideas is the idea of an implied contract. The idea that when Shakespeare went in to pitch his idea to the studio executive, they entered into, they didn't have to say the words, they just entered into an implied contract. You understand, Mr. Executive or Ms. Executive, that when I pitch you this idea, and if you use the idea, I expect to be compensated on terms and conditions to be negotiated, right? right. So that's what protects ideas, not copyright law, not anything else, but the, the cases that have grown up around the Desney versus Wilder case, the Seminole Court of Appeals case from the 1940s, I believe, um, that's what protects ideas rather than copyright law. For copyright law, you've got to show substantial similarity. You've got to show that whole lines of, of the screenplay are identical or substantially similar, not just a little bit similar. Oh, the character. You, you called your character Karen, and I called my character Karen. That's no substantial similarity. Uh, when I file a copyright infringement lawsuit based on pure infringement, other unlike the other situation I was talking about a few minutes ago, I have the client do two columns. The client stuff, the infringing stuff, show me the similarities. On page seven, Karen says, blah, 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 of my script. On page 12 of the infringing script, Karen says the same thing. The whole setting, the, the plot, the dialogue, the characters, the description of the characters, everything needs to be substantially similar. And the more substantially similar it is, the better case we so when when you're utilizing that, you're really utilizing the premise of implied um, and not having yeah implied contract between them. So you're suing in state court for breach of breach of an implied contract. You're not suing in federal court for copyright. Right, right. And implied contract can that all can that be that is just oral? Correct. Implied is oral. Yes. So there's nothing written down. There's nothing said. It's not really oral. It's implied. So express contracts can be oral or written. 
I hire you to paint my house. I want you to use blue paint. I'm going to pay you $1,700 to paint my house using blue paint. We shake hands. You paint my house. I pay you $1,700. There's a, an enforceable contract. We don't have to have a single piece of paper, right? That's, that's an express oral contract. Problem with oral contracts is they're not worth the paper they're printed on. They're hard to prove. I said blue blue paint. You said green paint. Who wins? We yeah, that's what trials are for. Versus written contracts, which everybody likes, you can point to the contract and say, as you see in paragraph three, it said blue paint. For a young filmmaker coming up through the ranks, what advice would you give to a young filmmaker? Either uh, a young filmmaker who is looking at publishing a novel or a young filmmaker in being aware of certain items they should look out for in an entertainment contract. A couple pieces of advice. Follow the business, subscribe to or obtain in some way, Variety, Hollywood Reporter, know what's going on in the business, know who the players are, know who's moving around, know what's happening. Uh, the business is constantly changing. Right now it's changing even more than I can ever remember it changing with Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime and the rest of the streaming services. The internet has revolutionized the entertainment business. So keep up with what's going on. Suggestion number one. Suggestion number two, get good representation. Get a good lawyer and get a good agent. An agent is a buyer finder. An agent who is the one is the one who is going to go out there and sell your spec script or get you hired as um, a writer on a TV series or is going to sell, find the buyer for whatever it is that you have to sell. That's what agents do. Don't go with managers. Managers supposedly advise you on your entertainment career. As far as I'm concerned, most managers are scum. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Speaking from speaking from an agent, the you know that that's great. I well, I'm a literary agent. I don't get clients' work. I, all I do is sell rights to books. I'm all I do is sell books to book publishers and then movie rights to books to Hollywood. I don't get clients' work. I don't. Uh, I'm not a, a literary. I mean, I'm only a literary agent, not a talent agent. But anyway, the point is that managers, first of all, are not regulated by the California Labor Commissioner. They're not, they're, they don't sign franchise agreements with the guilds, unlike agents. And so therefore they can charge whatever they want. And eight, most managers charge 15 or 20%. Point one. Point two, they act as producers on their clients' projects. So they double dip. That's why I think managers are scum. Because not only do they typically get 20% of their clients' income, they also get a fee for themselves where that pot of that fee that comes out of the pot of money that could otherwise be paid to I think in the independent world, if you can't secure an agent, the manager is the next best thing. Since you need some representation, it's better to have some than none at all. But, you know, there's good managers and there's good managers and bad managers out there. If you can't get yourself an agent and you're choosing between getting yourself a manager and getting yourself a lawyer, get yourself a lawyer. And I'm not saying that because I'm, I'm you know, self-interested here. I'm 
saying that because lawyers are at least regulated by the state bar. What's a dirty little secret of Hollywood that you can share with us through your travels that you have uh, learned and can say, hey, do this or watch out for this? I've been a lot of these conferences and, and have been asked a lot of questions. I've never been asked this question. <sighs> know when to, dirty. I don't know if this qualifies as a dirty little secret so much as a piece of advice, but get yourself good representation and listen to your representative. Don't think you know, know it all. And don't think that you know better than an experienced person who's been around the block a few times. Excellent. I think that's really uh, poignant advice. A lot of independents come in, bring in the team, get a team, and then they think they know more than the team. But you're hiring the team for their expertise. So listen to your team members. Um, I want to say thank you so much to our guest, Paul Levine. And anyone listening in, if you haven't submitted your film for the uh, La Femme International Film Festival, you have until uh, August 12th, I think, to squeeze in uh, on the last, last time to submit for this season. Go to Film Freeway, uh, search on La Femme International Film Festival, or go to lafemme.org. Don't forget to like us on all our Instagram, etc., social media, and we have the video component of this uh, podcast on our YouTube channel. So tap in there. Paul, you want to shout out any of your social media uh, connections for those that are tapping in right now? Uh, my LinkedIn profile is, you know, under Paul S. Levine. Don't forget the S because there are two other lawyers here in California with the same name. Neither of them are nearly as good looking as I am. Um, but it's uh, fortunately they both have different middle initials than I do. So Paul S for Samuel Levine, uh, we'll get you there. Um, my website is pauleslevine.com. I don't do much on Facebook, and I don't. Okay, quit. but you do teach, and um, if I and if teach. you are interested, at USC Law School, and I go to writers conferences all over the country. I will be in Oklahoma in. September at a writer's conference. God willing, it'll be a live one rather than on Zoom. We'll see. And then in November at Atlanta, at the Atlanta Writers Conference, which is a great writers conference. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us. Best and fest. Thank you.